Um, now, tonight we're going to discuss uh, cinema in revolutionary Ireland. Uh, so in Ireland in the revolutionary period, cinema was the latest form of mass entertainment, previously ignored as a pernicious working class fad, both by the British authorities and by their nationalist opponents, its propaganda potential was quickly realised. In 1916, the British government sponsored the production of the documentary The Battle of the Somme, which played in cinemas across Ireland and Britain. In 1917, within hours of the event, the Bohemian Cinema in Fibsborough screened uh, footage of Thomas Ashe's funeral. So what effect, of any, did such interventions have on public opinion? How did both sides use the new medium? So to discuss these and related uh, matters, we have uh, assembled a stellar panel here. Uh, Kevin Rocket uh, of Trinity College. Uh, we have uh, Kira Chambers here to my right of uh, University College Cork. Dennis Condon of Maynooth University to my left. And Joanne, Joanne Carroll, uh, she's playing at home here. She is, of course, from the, the National Library. Um, now, Dennis, uh, I want to go to you first. Um, the film was really only invented in the 1890s, uh, modern film as we understand it. Yet, by the 1910s, it had become mass entertainment. Mm. I mean, how had the infrastructure, how had this all come about so rapidly? Yeah, I think like a lot of media, we think now that media develop, the technologies are developed first. If we think about the internet, the internet is developed in the, in the 1980s, 1990s. But uh, it takes a while for people to get to know what they're going to do with the technologies. And it's similar with cinema. Actually, 100 years before, in the 1890s, you have the, the machines are developed, you know, the, 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 the moving picture camera and projector and so on. Uh, but people use them in theatres and fairgrounds and lots and lots of other different types of venues. But they didn't, cinema as such doesn't develop. Yeah, that, that is, if, if we think of cinema as a fixed venue where you see moving pictures is the main entertainment in, in the place, that really doesn't happen until the 1910s in Ireland, a little bit earlier in America and, and many parts of Europe. Um, so but so Ireland is, is, you know, it's up, it's up to the mark like in terms of other places, it's not too far behind. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. pretty much. I mean, within a few years, really, you know, I mean, there are hundreds of cinemas in London in, in comparison to there are 40 in Belfast and about 25, 26 in, in Dublin, you know, th those kind of numbers. And what about outside Dublin? Outside, um, by, after 1910, we really see an explosion in the building of buildings for cinema. You know, it, it becomes really a popular thing. People have money from, from various sources um, and it seems to be the next thing that you're going to make money in, you know, and you'll make a quick book. Um, and there was a model for it just before this, there were, there were skating rinks uh, in many parts of the country, believe it or not. <laughs> um, that's interesting because the, the old cinema, there was a state cinema in Fibsborough, used mm. to be a cinema, and then it became an ice rink uh, a mm. few years ago. Right? Yeah, so, there's a full circle going there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's right for a rink, you'll go in a full circle. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's, it's popular entertainment. People are thinking, you know, or, or people who have money are thinking, you know, so how am I going to make some, some more money? Okay, I can build a rink, you know, okay, rink is gone now after a couple of years the next entertainment craze is cinema uh, not that they loved moving pictures many of them um, it was just you know a way of making money and, and um, but it, it, it was more extensive than than rinking in, in terms of its reach into even very small communities after by the, the first world war any 
place with 3,000 people had a cinema. Pretty now, much. How much, <laughs> how much would it cost to go to the cinema? Um, it, it, it was very cheap, but it was, it was much cheaper than other types of entertainment. So it's in the, within the reach of vast numbers of people? Yes, I think that's the difference. You know, where people uh, could only very occasionally afford, or people with, with little, little disposable income could only very occasionally go to a theatre show, they could go much more regularly to the cinema. Kevin, I've got to go to you. What sort of films were people, you know, watching? And a, a supplementary question, like any films with, with uh, Irish content or Irish themes? Well, I mean, cinema came in here as, as quickly as it probably did anywhere. So uh, as Dennis was saying, we probably had about 150 cinemas by the early 1910s, or cinema buildings. And they were beginning to run full-time cinemas, really, from 1909, through, right, right up to the present. And most of the films that we were getting were coming via London, American or British, French, Italian, and the like. So there wasn't a problem of language until the 1930s, in terms of so that these uh, other European films could easily be shown. And, but simultaneously, as part of that sort of group of films, and there is a, a very important cycle of Irish films that begin to be produced, or ones dealing with Irish history. And really, we can sort of trace, especially from around 1907, 1908, a cycle of very interesting films set in the 1798-1803 period, which is, of course, the first revolutionary period. And there were about 40 such films made between 1907 and 1916. And, and these films were generally were American or indeed British and many of them made in Ireland as well, in, in Kerry, that were really taking quite a sympathetic view of the Republican position in 98, or indeed of Emmett's rebellion as well. So that this is the first sort of group of really interesting films, one of which we're about to see an extract Can I a simple from. question before we go to that? How did they deal with the weather? <laughs> because I, I, I assumed that the reason why Hollywood took off was because they did marvellous uh, sunshine. Well, weather, well, know? one of the solutions of the Calum Film Company that operated near Killarney in 1910-1912 especially was that they, of course, had no artificial lighting. So they had made exterior sets in fields with no roofs on them so that they actually used natural lighting during the day. They were made during the summer. Course. Uh, and in the summer of 1911, they made 17 films in an 18-week period set at the village of Beaufort uh, near Killarney. Uh, and a number of those were dealing with the 98 period. Um, now, a, a slightly later film, which we could run, Ireland a Nation, uh, here is from 19, made in the summer, really, of 1914. And this is a film that was deemed to be the great sweep of Irish history from 98 through the Great Famine. This is St. Enders. Yeah, and the first... We don't have a pianist here, by the way, so we don't have the <laughs> piano so accompaniment. The first reel of this film is, has been lost, but it picks up here with activities that have a, a certain sort of historical instability uh, about them and feature, amongst others, Michael Dwyer and Devlin and, indeed, Emmett, uh, really, as well. And, uh, and one of the historical inaccuracies, one of many in, in the film, is that we have uh, Michael Dwyer heading off to Australia with Anne Devlin. Uh, uh, which, or Napoleon uh, here. Yeah. Uh, and we have indeed Emmett uh, indeed meeting um, 
with Napoleon uh, as well. Uh, and, uh, but one of the, what's interesting about this, this was uh, produced and directed by a Waterford-born man called McNamara, who made his money in America from making the first sexploitation film in 1913 called Traffic in Souls. So he has an important footnote in American film history in that <laughs> regard. And he made this, uh, th this film partly in London, but also here in the summer of 1913. And the film, in its first uh, effort to, as it were, get back to Ireland as a finished film, was in May of 1915. But unfortunately, the mode of transport he chose at the time was the Lusitania, uh, so that the film is still off southwest Cork. And the next copy of the film that arrived in Ireland didn't come until after the rising. Now, we're going to return to this again. But really what happens with the rising is that any film dealing with 98 or 1803 was really very much uh, discouraged, to put it mildly, by the uh, military censors. And amongst the scenes in this film that was cut before the film was eventually shown in January of 1917 was a very incendiary scene, which is the mock hanging of Anne Devlin, which is historically correct. Um, but that had to be cut out by the, was cut out by the military censors. But the film itself uh, was also subsequently banned after, after it ran for two days at the Rotunda. Now we're going to return to this sort of issue in the post-1916 uh, period, but really 1916 completely transformed the type of films that the British military censors allowed to be made and distributed in Ireland. And anything dealing with 98 or 1803 or other historical events uh, sympathetic to the Republican position were suppressed. Joanne, I, I, thanks for doing the, 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 the technical stuff. It always fills me with, with great anxiety when I I'm sharing these things. Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> Joanne, uh, I, I suspect uh, many people in the audience mightn't have seen that before, right? Um, are these films still accessible? Because I know you're, you're a curator of the, 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 um, the Liam O'Leary archive. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, just to give you background on who Liam O'Leary was, so he worked for the British Film Institute. Um, he was a lifelong lover of film and he worked towards the, um, the encouragement and to set up a film industry in Ireland, but then also to set up a film archive in Ireland, um, sort of his life's work, so much so that he set up a film archive in his own apartment, in his one bed flat. This was then donated to the National um, library and a couple of years ago working with the Irish Film Institute um, Film Archive we uh, catalogued and preserved this film archive so it's made up of um, the films that are held in the IFI now but then it's also all the the research and memorabilia and everything that Liam O'Leary collected so if there's not um, the actual film in the collection there's a reference to a film in the collection so his life's work was to document all of Irish film and Irish cinema. Um, and I think he did a great job of it, to be fair. Um, so there's references to it, but in terms of the actual films themselves, some of them are few and far between. Um, Tommy, can I interject yeah. there, just to draw the audience's attention to the fact that, in fact, Ireland a Nation, um, uh, as amongst the films of the three hours of the fiction films made between 1910 and 1915 that are available free of charge, on a Trinity College website called tcd.ie forward slash Irish film. And you can view and download all of these films uh, for free. We restore them in Trinity with some people with electronic engineering. 
and it includes Ireland the Nation, but also Rory Amour, which is a very important historical film, and some of the adaptations of Busico, which were made by the uh, Kerry, uh, by the American company Calum working in Kerry, a number of films. So just to mention that they are accessible, but they're also available on DVD and through the IFI as well. But how important is, is, is the Liam O'Leary archive? I, I know it's, it's, it's mainly documents, you know, to study a film. Yeah, well, I'm a bit biased because I was the archivist on the collection. I think it's hugely important. I mean, if you look at all of this, all of his research and all of his collecting, um, like the way he collected materials was that he wrote to different people involved in Irish film and Irish cinema, like Annie O'Sullivan, for example, with the Caelum Company that Kevin had mentioned. Um, her father owned the hotel that the Caelum Company stayed in between 1911 and 1914 when they were filming down in Kerry. So he actually just wrote to her and asked her for all of her memories and all, asked her for photographs, anything, any memorabilia that she had, and she gave it to Liam O'Leary. And he either took a copy of it or took the original and acquired it into his collection. So it's a huge collection. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a must stop you know, for, for, for any, any researcher. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It is, yeah. Uh, Kira, can I bring you in now? Because we're not just talking about entertainment here. There's also the advent of the newsreel, which is your, your mm -hmm. uh, specialist mm -hmm. area. You can talk to us a bit about that. Well, the newsreels were quite an important part of the cinema programme because before the widespread advent of television in people's homes in the 1950s, of course, the only way people could see moving image news was at the cinema. So the newsreels were short films of up to 10 minutes long, including five or six items of news, local news, international news, sports, personalities, events. They tended to always end with a quirky or lighthearted item. They loved inventions and fads and so on. And in many ways, this format mirrors the type of news we access on a variety of platforms today, that mix of current affairs and entertainment. So the newsreels tended to be very upbeat and positive in their depiction, as we'll see. Um, Ireland was a particularly unique case study in terms of the newsreels because there wasn't much sustained Indigenous production. There were a couple of incidents of it, but not a huge amount. So that meant that Ireland was catered for and covered by British newsreel companies. And of course, this was very complex when it came to coverage of the politics of the era that we're looking at tonight, because there was a very pro-establishment British agenda attached to many of these newsreel companies, as we'll see. So, and you know, sent up uproariously by you know Harry Enfield, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the sort of pate news. Uh, yeah. And now, Dennis, I want to come back to you now because let's go back to the the, the, the period itself, right? So, what was what was an evening in the cinema like? What sort of what sort of a program would, would be served up to people? So we, we we've heard just about, about the newsreel, and the newsreel would have been say five or ten minutes. That'd be on of first, presumably. No, <laughs> really. Generally, yeah. be on last, but it could it could change where where it was in the program. So the last? program. Why would yeah. people stay for a newsreel if they're just seeing the main event? Um, yeah, it's a good they question. Wanted news, it's a good question. <laughs> they wanted news, and you, and you expected to get your value. And you, what you did was often the 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 program would be continuous. So you waited for the point where you came in, and you know that's the that's where I came in, and you go out then. <laughs> just by the so way, wait till wait till I came back. Just be, I, I forgot to mention at the, at the start, just in terms of the format of the head school here, uh, we, we will be inviting the audience to to participate. Uh, you know, so if you want to make any contribution or ask a question. Uh, um, you know, later on, you, you'll have ample opportunity uh, to do that. Now, Dennis, I, I'm thinking, you know, the, the, you, you've got um, large amounts of capital expended on building these, these you know, picture palaces. Mm. Uh, the lights go off, right? Mm. Uh, they're full of young people. Mm -hmm. You know, 
what sort of stuff was going on there? Like, I mean, what, 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 what how, how did, you know, the, the powers that be, the clergy, you know, how did they, uh, what did they think of this new, newfangled? Uh, they, they weren't thing. happy, it has to be said. Um, you know, because it is an, an unregulated space, uh, largely unregulated space initially. And a lot of the, the cinemas, particularly the, the, the more respectable establishments, were very uh, clear about the fact that they had liveried attendants, uniformed men on the door. Um, often they'd, when they, when they advertised for these people, they'd say they wanted men who had military experience. And so they had these <laughs> large men in uniform on the door. Um, and in the auditorium itself, there'd be quite a lot of activity from uh, staff. You know, so there, there would be women who would show people to, their seat, to, to the seats, usherettes, we, we would say later on. And it was quite gendered, you know, so it was women who did that job, it was men who were on the door, it was women at the, um, the cash box, and so on. But there was a lot of people, there was a lot of activity, and people would be come and go, because it was a, in most places it was a continuous show. Um, so, yes, it's, 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 it's a dark space. It's, um, it's a space that, for people who didn't have much personal space in their homes as well, in this period, you know, is, is a semi-private space, uh, a place maybe where you can get some privacy. And so, yes, it does, it does invite uh, activities that might be mirrored on screen as well, you know, if you go to a romance and, you know, you can... Just, just a, a warning here to anyone in the audience who, 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 who wants to unburden themselves with their experiences in these darkened spaces, that this is being recorded. <laughs> be subsequently available on a podcast, right? Just, just so you're, you're aware of that, right? Um, as you say, the, the, then there's the authorities. What do they do about this? You know, and, and so they are uh, worried about this. And be, uh, as, you, as you said initially, you know, so this is, um, you know, it's kind of working class. A lot of working class people, a lot of young people are interested in it, like new media. Like when the internet comes out, you know, the, the young people grab it first, you know, as, the, as theirs. Um, Tommy, and yeah, Kevin, yeah, I could add to that. I mean, to draw attention to, there's a very important um, uh, act, the Cinematograph Act of 1909, and that was trying to formalize the regulation of cinemas through requiring cinemas uh, to receive a certificate, essentially originally, of safety from the local authority to make sure, because there'd been a number of fires of the very combustible nitrate film that was then in use. So it was, and literally hundreds of people had been killed throughout Europe uh, through the cinema fires, often in buildings that were just made of wood. So, uh, and it was amongst other things requiring lead-lined projection boxes to so is that, is separate that, is the... That already, is, that already, is that in this period? Is that yeah, in 1909, the yeah. 1909 okay. Act. But what happened in Britain initially, and then it was applied here, was that the courts began to interpret the 1909 Act as allowing for the local authorities to determine what the content of the films that could be shown in cinema. So it wasn't a censorship act, but the, the British courts from 1910, 11, 12, and then also in Dublin, began to interpret the act as allowing the local authority to essentially set up a quasi-censorship system. And that became formalized here in, in fact, appropriately enough, in 1916, uh, September of 1916, that, gave, that set up local authority uh, a panels of censors. But unlike what happened in 1923 after independence, the act that we currently have, was that this was a, um, a, 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 it wasn't prior to a film being screened. It was a censorship along theatre lines that something was put on somebody could come along and object to it and then require that the film was to be cut. 
and, and that proved, uh, that led to only, uh, only when we look at the post-independence period, only 100 films to be banned between 1916 and 22. So there was relatively few that were banned or indeed cut, in part because these films were only coming in for two or three days. By the time they got around to looking at them, they, they weren't able to assess them. Was it a bit like the banning of books by him? The book was banned. Well, a lot, a lot, anyway. well, a lot of people who were, in fact, involved in the revolutionary movement, were, who were members of Dublin Corporation, including Sean T. O'Kelly, uh, actually became censors themselves in that period because the, the councillors themselves could nominate themselves as censors and they participated in this nonsense uh, that uh, went on in this period. But it all came out of how the courts interpreted the 1909 Act. But that, uh, which allowed for local authorities to do it, but that was superseded by national film censorship in 1923. It also was there, sorry, Dennis, the yeah. sort of Catholic Church that came, became involved in it, so there's an Irish Vigilance Association, and then hmm. even sort of individual Catholic priests. Um, the, uh, when the Calum Company were filming down in Kerry, I, I read an anecdote of um, a particular parish priest was given off that these tramp photographers were coming in and only shooting the old-style thatched roofs and not showing the new modern buildings that we have in Ireland. And this was in 1911 or 1912. Okay. Sort of a quote that could have been said in 1991 or something. You know, so he's complaining about cliched views of, yeah. of, of Ireland, right? Yeah, um, and saying that some actors were making love on the graves and in the graveyard and the graves of our ancestors and this sort of hmm. thing. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. the Catholic the, Church yeah, the, vi well. the vigilance committees activities in relation to the cinema really is a byproduct of their activity as literary censorship. They came out of Limerick in 1909, 1910, when British Sunday newspapers were, uh, were basically t publicly burned by uh, confraternity activists in Limerick. And out of that sort of configuration developed the national organization, first of all, against smutty literature as they saw it, and then cinema because by 1910-11, cinemas were beginning to show much more explicit, bold films, more um, salacious uh, storylines and the like, uh, such as around issues around divorce, extramarital affairs and the like, which of course were objected to by uh, the Catholic Church. But it was often, uh, there was often a performance of, of this. Um, there was a particular man called uh, William Larkin and he had a, a twin brother, Francis, and they often would go into cinemas and uh, during a show when the lights went down they would, they, would, they would stand up in the cinema and start shouting and throwing things at the screen, ink at the screen. So if you throw ink at the screen it renders it useless. And, but the other outcome of that, if you throw ink at the screen in a cinema where you've got a live orchestra, the, the orchestra often got the inking as well as the screen. Uh, but the, there was this kind of performance, you know, so this might be part of, the, and they would, they would say, you know, um, you know, we need a Catholic censorship, you know, so they'd, and they'd cause a panic in the, in the cinemas and people would run out and they would um, get arrested. Often. William Larkin was arrested many times and then a report would appear in the paper about it and further uh, publicise the campaign by the Vigilance Association. But what happened is more people went to see the films. Uh, because <laughs> we have evidence of that. Yeah. It happened yeah. in Rennell, it happened at the Savoy. You yeah. know, with no, no, such, no such thing as bad publicity, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we, we have here a new, a new um, medium, you know, we're just treated with, with suspicion, if you like, by the, 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 uh, the powers that be, if you like. But Kevin, it, it doesn't take 
the government, or the British government in this case, long to, to realise its, its, its power. And then you have the making then in 1916 of the Battle of the Somme, which is a remarkable uh, uh, documentary. Yeah. Um, so we'll we, 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 we show a clip of it first there, Joanne. This was controversial at the time because there were debates in the trade press about what it was appropriate to show in the cinema, that some of this was seen to be too horrific. Um, some cinema exhibitors refused to show the film. One London exhibitor put up a sign in his cinema saying, this is a place of amusement, not a chamber of horrors. We will not be showing the Battle of the Somme. However, it proved very popular with audiences, but it testifies to the manipulability of the form because there were staged sequences in this film and that was largely very problematic and that it wasn't necessarily always depicting the action at the front. But it was seen at this time that film could be hugely useful for propaganda purposes. And it was reckoned that if you um, produced good propaganda in the cinema, that you could actually boost morale at the front. And it was assumed that through letters from home to the front, that morale could filter through. So the cinema was seen as quite a powerful place in order to enact this kind of propaganda circle between um, those at home and those off fighting. And how, how could they get the propaganda mileage out of such a disaster as the Battle of the Somme? Well, everything is depicted ultimately in upbeat terms. And um, I think when we see um, the, the, the next clip, which is the North and South Irish, if you don't mind putting on that, Joanne, um, this is a really good example. The newsreels in particular were very good at being optimistic and positive. And this was partly because they were shown in a place of entertainment and cinema exhibitors um, didn't want their patrons upset on their evening out. Now, this intertitle is important. This is a film that was produced um, in two forms, one in 1916, just after the Easter Rising, to remind viewers of the Irish soldiers off fighting in the war. And then again in 1918, further footage was added to suggest that soldiers from throughout Ireland were working together in the international war effort. So it was suggested if soldiers with unionist and nationalist viewpoints could work so well together off at the front, and this wasn't necessarily happening, but the newsreels were saying it was, then of course when they came home they could coexist peacefully. And this is very specially timed for coming up to the end of the war when the home rule debates would resume and there may be kind of civil unrest associated with this. So there's a preemptive agenda here um, with this film to say to audiences, look, if you can work together in wartime um, against common enemies, can't you coexist at home? Well, there's nothing, nothing uh, new about that. I mean, because it strikes me that a lot of the discourse around uh, the, the centenary commemoration of the First World War takes a form of rather bizarre idea that this is some form of peace and reconciliation, right, in the midst of slaughter. But, uh, but there you go. Even at the time, though, that, you know, something like the Battle of the Somme or, or some of those, those newsreels that, you, that you've shown uh, would, would invite protests. That the, so they were, uh, the Battle of the Somme was shown in the, the Theatre Royal and many of the propaganda films were shown in the Theatre Royal, which was the biggest theatre in the city, in Dublin. Um, and they would have a military band, the, the Fawabala, where the, the, the military band would play. So they'd have this military element and soldiers would be allowed in free and so on. But you'd also get ordinary people who would come and actually stand up and make a protest in that kind of a, a situation. Not for you know, censorship, but they wanted, um, you know. A well, in fact, Mulgan organized some of the Fenia to go into cinemas to attack recruitment films.
and we have evidence from it in terms of the Grafton syndrome. But more generally, as Kira's book shows, that uh, really from the beginning of the British newsreels in 1912, that when it came to issues around Ireland, that the, uh, the British newsreels tended, uh, or tended almost exclusively, uh, tried to create it in effect uh, Carson as a sort of hero against home rule uh, and tended to be anti-home rule generally. And in addition to that, if you trace it right through to the representation of John Redmond and indeed his, his uh, Willie Redmond um, during the war, that they were of course supporting the war effort. And when Willie Redmond died and uh, was killed in battle in 1917, there was a newsreel you know, sympathizing with his position when, when Redmond himself died, um, that the, the newsreel was titled The Empire's Loss. And then in the subsequent by-election in Waterford, that uh, when Redmond's son uh, was in a ferocious battle with Sinn Féin, that the newsreels were producing propaganda in, in support of Redmond against uh, Sinn Féin. And so in that sort of sense, that the, there was no such thing as neutrality as regards the nationalist or republican position, either before or indeed after the rising. You know, so we have, uh, and that, that followed through into the War of Independence as well, where the tans were whitewashed, in effect. In the, uh, <laughs> just, just going back to a point that Keir raised about the, this thing of uh, footage being staged, right? Mm. Mm. But is not always the case with documentaries, as I understand it. <laughs> not always. <laughs> no, but well, I mean, no, but it, it started no, but with is, the Boer War. Yeah. yeah, it started with the Boer War, really, and even the the Spanish-American War, that there were staged scenes in the 1890s, uh, really there. No, I'm even thinking of some of you know Michael Moore's documentaries. Like he's been criticised for even say, you know, the infamous or famous interview with Charlton Heston, right? You know, that critic said that you know he set him up and made him look bad and you know what I mean, that, yeah. that he, he, he manipulated the, the well, situation. Like, like with all media, you, you can present it in the information in a certain way and frame it in a certain way and so on. Um, you know, like with the, the Battle of the Somme, there are, there are scenes from the Battle of the Somme in, in that film and it's, it's, it's still a, a document in, in, in that way. Mm. Um, but it, for me, I think that's, you know, then how this is received by an audience or uh, you know the context in which it appears and because cinema at the time didn't have a soundtrack uh, you know the intertitles are important of course um, but the music that's produced in the cinema and, and the, 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 the supplements that the audience pr provides if they're going to do a protest you know that happens rarely enough really but um, you know, music can be um, a, a way in which there's a local interpretation of these and the way in which a program is, 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 is formed that you may have a newsreel that might be, seem like explosive material, but if it's, if it's in a program in which you have a couple of comedies and you know, a, a, a film version of a play, then maybe the explosive nature of a particular film might be um, ameliorated in, in some way. Or, or it can be um, exaggerated by, by the, the way in which a program is. is Just one thing again about, about the, 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 the music accompaniment, right? Mainly piano. Where do they get all these pianists from, right? I mean, you know, suddenly all these cinemas open, right? That's a huge. Thousands of them. <laughs> and like, 
uh, all of them must have had a, a penis, like so. Mm -hmm. I mean, with the well, some, out somewhere. Some, I mean, it's just, it, it just struck me now. Like, I mean, where well, did they, where the, they come from? You well, know? by the twenties, there were like small orchestras there, right? And what limited evidence we have about how much they were paid, we certainly know of what was the second largest cinema in the country, which was um, in Rap Mines, um, that um, the musical director of that of the Prince's Cinema was being paid more than the manager of the cinema itself. Right. And that was an orchestra of, I think, about eight or ten people. But, of course, what happened with the sound cinema is that hundreds of people here, thousands of musicians in Britain, lost their jobs. Right. It was a big campaign in the early 30s to try and... Uh, uh, really, uh, and why we have import duty on sound fil the films that came in in 1930 was to try and stop sound cinema or slow it down coming into the country mm. so that Irish musicians would be uh, retained in employment. Of course, that didn't happen, but, um, but that was the, the way. An, an example, an early, an early example of a, a disruptor, I think is the term yes, yeah. <laughs> we use now. The, the, the music is fascinating because the, the, uh, the first people, the majority of musicians first are women. Um, women pianists. Uh, so there's a huge boom in uh, many middle-class women, you know, one of the, the skills that they would have learned was music. Okay, well, uh, answers, party answers my question. It came from the drawing rooms of Ireland in some cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's good, there's, there's good evidence of, 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 you know, small bands or, or individual women who were playing in, in cinema. So it's a boom for, for women's um, employment. And I mean, that, that's where, you know, skilled uh, work in cinemas um, is, is a lot of it is, is taken up by women initially um, and then it, it becomes very variegated in, in you know in a big cinema you would have uh, the pianist would start and then the, it would be taken over by a band of maybe two or three mu musicians and then as the main show comes on you have a, a, an orchestra of up to well up to 40 musicians in the in the very biggest places um, and and you know, and, and then they, they swap during the during the day. So there's a lot a lot of musicians working in cinemas. Well, what they did was just one anecdote on that is when the Savoy Cinema opened in 1929, that they put in a, a Wurlitzer orchestra uh, organ, mm -hmm. which was, and they brought a guy who was a graduate of Cambridge University, uh, a music department, to play it. So one person could produce all of the sounds mm -hmm. through. The an enormous instrument to yeah, this yeah. enormous instrument, mm. uh, rather than as the Savoy would have required probably 15 or 20 musicians. So that was a transition phase out of mm. silent cinema in uh, in the late 20s, where those sort of huge or organs were. But then they could advertise the, the musician. If you had, they would they would employ the best musicians in the country. You know, mm. you had. Um, um, uh, the, the people who are teaching, the professors of music in, in the Royal Irish Academy, mm -hmm. um, uh, teaching, actually playing in the, in the, in the cinema. Mm -hmm. So they would advertise their solos. So at, um, at seven o'clock, we will have a solo uh, on the, on the mm -hmm. uh, cello um, from you know, whoever, whoever it is. You know. And so it becomes another attraction that people come to, to hear um, uh, these, these people playing. Just before we move, I just want to go back to the Battle of the Somme for, for a minute because, uh, Kira, you mentioned that the stuff was staged, right? So a lot of the, the footage that we see again and again in documentaries about the First World War are actually taken from that 
documentary, as I understand it. Would that be true? Yes, there's a second life to a lot of this material because it's recycled in more recent documentaries and a lot of it is now available online as well. So new audiences are coming to this material in a variety of ways. There's this remediation of the content that occurs. And that's in contrast, say, to the Second World War, where there's, there's, there's miles and miles of footage by contrast. There's a lot more, yeah, yes, yeah. a lot more exists. So yeah, and I, I think, you know, the one that there's that famous mind that blows up. And every time I watch a, a First World War documentary, the same explosion to show it again and again. Now, but, but this throws up this question then of the audience is watching this of what is real and what isn't, right? I mean, which is an interesting political and philosophical uh, question. Did, did anyone... Did anyone theorise about this at the time? Did anyone have a handle on this? There would have been debates in the trade papers about notions of truthful representation, um, but audiences were not as sophisticated as they are now. So often library footage was used, certainly in the newsreels, one location stood in for another. This isn't that different from the type of news we receive now. You are used to seeing images of a hospital when there's a report on an accident or in the health service more generally. Library footage is kind of constantly used as a visual wallpaper to illustrate stories and that was a practice right from the start. But early newsreel um, producers banked on audiences not knowing. Um, and of course at this stage equipment is cumbersome, it's heavy, it's harder to travel. Newsreels in many cases captured the aftermath of events because they couldn't get there quickly enough. Mm. That's why they loved staged events, um, marches, rallies, and um, sporting fixtures because they could easily get there and set up the best vantage point to, to take the action. Actually, you mentioned sport. Uh, does sport come into it here at all? I mean, was it being yeah. filmed? Was it possible to film? Yes, it was. A football <laughs> match, say? Yeah, there, and there's famous examples. They don't survive, unfortunately, of early GAA matches, but there are some very early uh, rugby and soccer mm. matches from, from 1902 mm. in, the, in the Mitchell and Kenyon collection. There's a whole uh, DVD collection if anybody's interested in, 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 in those matches. Um, but in, in Ireland, there were, there were certainly the GAA matches were filmed, um, uh, but they don't survive, unfortunately, because they had a, a short period in which they were, they were very, very uh, popular. Um, and shown all over the country, oh. and again, demonstrations with them. Um. Well, one of the things they did, as well as with political imagery, there's two very different examples here. One is that if there were two teams, uh, we know that from what Dennis is saying, 1902, 1903, two teams were playing maybe in the uh, in a game in the afternoon, and they could come, because the film could be processed very quickly in Dublin, didn't have to be sent to London at all, um, and that the, the teams would come and see themselves at the rotunda. That is exactly what happened, in fact, when the Sinn Féin prisoners were released um, from Frognorton and came back, came in through Westland Row. And there was a company at the time called General Film Supply that had, a, had its offices on uh, what's now Pierce Street, Great Brunswick Street. And they filmed the procession coming up uh, from, well, they filmed at Westland Row and then coming up Pierce Street. And they processed the film during that day and showed it in the rotunda that night, but of course now you all know where the rotunda is, of course, Bastard Cinema and location. Uh, and, uh, and many of the Sinn Féin uh, prisoners who had been released came to see themselves on screen that very evening uh, in, the, in the rotunda. So that, that sort of engagement, that is why, in fact, um, even before 1916, many of the uh, Republican activists were quite attuned to the importance of a cinematic representation because they could see it as a mobilizing 
force. And even though there's only a limited amount, we have the, of course, of Donovan Rossa uh, funeral from 1915, but also there was the filming at Bodenstown in 1913 that Thomas Clark very much praised, and the film was sent to the States uh, as well at that time. And they saw that, that those sorts of events yeah. Because there were fixed events, as we're really saying, yeah. that they could be uh, filmed much more readily than... And that, know, that uh, return of the Sinn Féin prisoners is the launch of the very first Irish indigenous newsreel, the Irish events. Irish events. From, on the you're back, jumping ahead here, lads, now, because I want to go back okay. to, <laughs> to the, the, the other big event. Uh, we've talked about the Battle of the Somme documentary is, of course, uh, Kira, the, the, uh, the 1916 uh, Rising. So you, you're going to talk us to another clip here. Okay. Um, this is Topical Budget's coverage of the Easter Rising. Topical Budget was obviously a British company. And it's interesting that this depicts, as I mentioned, the aftermath of events. So we see the damage to streets and buildings. And often in the newsreels, it was significant which stories were placed alongside each other or the order of particular items. So after, in, in this um, particular item, in this newsreel, after we see the damaged streets of Dublin, there's only one other item covered in this newsreel, and that shows the Allies' bands in Paris performing. So that juxtaposition is very significant because it shows Ireland destroying itself and its architectural mm. heritage, and then it moves to Paris to remind <laughs> us that there's an international war going on. And one of the actors in particular is depicted as the personification of Britannia. So there's a suggestion here of everything imperial that Britannia represents and of a much smaller insurrection at home in Dublin. And the message here is perhaps you should not be concerned with local conflict, but with this much larger global conflict that's unfolding at the same time. But how, how do you explain, though, there's, is the pathé that has the film of some of the prisoners, you know, being um, walking past the camera, yeah. and it ends up on an image of the Irish War News, which was, of course, the rebels' own propaganda sheet, the first edition of it, and it actually ends on that, and I've never quite understood why, like a British newsreel, would actually finish with just showing that there was the War News. Uh, or maybe they didn't even maybe realize what, what actually was. was the content of it was, yeah. Yeah. you know, but that's actually, and that is still there on one of the, uh, one of those 1916 films. Mm -hmm. Dennis, that, that clip that Kira has just shown us, that, that obviously is, is a British newsreel, as she said. So were there any Irish ones? Uh, yes, there were. Well, we, we were talking about the, um, the Irish events, which comes in 1917. It, it, it starts because of... And who, who's behind that? Uh, a man, well, there's a company called General Film Supply that are located on, on Brunswick Street now, uh, Pier Street, uh, near Trinity College. Um, and it, 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 the man's name was Norman Whitten, who owned the company. And he had been making films in Ireland since 1913, had, had started General Film Supply in 1913, had been making advertising films and local films. He'd, he, he was a, a, a cinematographer for hire. If you had an event and you wanted it filmed, you went to General Film Supply. But in... On the it's back, a commercial operation then. It's a, it's a, a very purely commercial operation. Commercial operation. Whitten was an Englishman, mm, uh, yeah, so he didn't okay. have uh, a dog in the race in terms of uh, what was going on in terms of nationalism and unionism in Ireland, as far as we can tell. Um, certainly, the content of what he 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 sold, he sold to both sides. He made propaganda films uh, during the war, uh, but he also made these newsreels that were used in a very propagandistic way by um, uh, Irish Republicans or um, Irish nationalists. Can you um, give us an example there, John? This, this is the famous one of Michael Collins 
Yeah, and the, uh, this, is, this is a little bit later. This isn't different. This yeah. isn't films. This isn't the, uh, this Irish. Is an example of that genre, though, of, a, of a, an Irish. This, this is a very interesting film. Well, <laughs> um, this is this. This is the block on which Michael or Robert Emmett was executed that is, is still in uh, St. Endes. And we're looking at the steps of St. Endes, if, if people know St. Endes, which was, of course, the school associated with Paul Rick Pierce, There's but also associated with, with Robert Emmett because um, Emmett, the Emmett Walk and so on. And, and, um, There's the, the Bishop of Kilroo making a down payment of 75 pennies. On a, what 150? He's going to give 150. So we have the church here, and we have we have um, well, I suppose we have education of a kind with the Saint Endes and uh, the, the the Republican tradition, and um, and of course we have Michael Collins um, is about to sell doll bonds to all the Sinn Fein notabilities, as they're called in the in the intertitle. I mean, we think of Collins as a famous people. We think of Collins as a, a guerrilla leader, but in fact he was a minister for finance, which was the key position in yeah. any operation. And raising, I mean, he was selling uh, uh, bonds for the Republic that had not yet been established, which is quite quite a trick. But what is also interesting about this film, who was made at St. Enders during the time there was an adaptation of William Carlton's novel, Willie Riley's Colleen Bourne, being made there. And the director of this, of both the feature film and of this uh, short documentary, was no less than John McDonough, who was the brother of Thomas McDonough, and whose other brother, um, whose name I can't recall, Joseph, Joseph, uh, who uh, is one of those who was paraded before the camera here. And Joseph Plunkett himself, in fact, died on uh, hunger strike on, on Christmas Day 1922 as an anti-treaty um, TD. Um, uh, and, uh, but, well, at this point, that John McDonough, who himself had fought in the 1916 Rising, had been in sent Florida. off to Wales, mm-hmm. uh, but like the others, were all pardoned uh, subsequently. Uh, but, uh, but one of the reasons why I think that the Common Gael government were nervous about filmmaking in the 1920s is that so many people from the revolutionary period were associated with filmmaking, especially with the Film Company of Ireland, which was a company that was established in 1916 by an, uh, a rather infamous Irish-American uh, lawyer uh, and who was married to uh, essentially one of the Maras of, of uh, Limerick, which were a big bacon, uh, wealthy uh, family. Nationalist, but nationalist, a nationalist family. A nationalist, well, in fact, one, he, one of them was the uh, first, I think, uh, TD to jump, uh, or a member of parliament to jump ship from the parliamentary party to uh, Sinn Féin. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but what is, quite interesting, in the first films they made in 1916, they started filming in March 1916, and unfortunately they had uh, taken offices at the top of Henry Street, uh, and uh, their first uh, outing of their films and their offices were destroyed during the Rising. But by the autumn of 1916, they had nine short comedies and dramas actually made. And, and went on uh, then in, 19, in the summer of 1970, made an adaptation of, the, uh, of Charles Kickham's hugely popular uh, novel, Knock Nagao, uh, which is set in, in and after the famine, that sort of periodization. And, and with the huge success of that, released on the second anniversary of the Rising, um, with Nock Nagao, they then went on to make this version 
of Willie Riley's Colin Bourne, which was released on the fourth anniversary of the Rising in 1920. And that was really the end, really, of the Film Company of Ireland, because, and indeed most filmmaking in Ireland at the time, because, including of Irish events, because, of course, the intensif intensification of the War of Independence really made it very difficult uh, to um, make films. But also, McDonough himself was warned by Michael Collins that he was on a list for, out of the castle to be picked up. And he actually went uh, and, um, shall we say, emigrated uh, temporarily to Scotland uh, to escape the clutches of the special branch. So it's a very, uh, the Film Company of Ireland is the most important film production company in Ireland in the silent period. And uh, obviously, and, and happily, these two feature films, uh, Knock Nagao and Willie Riley, both survive, uh, as does, of course, the, uh, this documentary on the Republican loan bonds. So Just that, that post-independence, uh, post-rising period is really a crucially important period in Irish film history. Just before we, we go on, just to say, if, if anybody wants to come in with a question or make a, a contribution, you know, just, just put your hand up and uh, you, you will be heard. Well, Sorry, I, Dennis, I you want to say about Doll Bonds is um, uh, John McDonough tells the story of how it was distributed. So they were on the run. They were basically the IRA on the run. Um, uh, so you couldn't really release films in, in a way that you might have wanted to, in, uh, and particularly a film like The, the Doll Bonds. So, um, allegedly, they um, would arrive at a cinema, would go to the projection box, would hold, hold, take the film off, basically, at gunpoint, and put on this film, show the film in the cinema, um, and be gone before the, the police arrived. So, so I mean, an unusual it, way to distribute a film. So they're, they're, they're showing a, a, an appreciation of the new medium. I mean, they're... <laughs> they are. They know, what, know what they're doing, yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, would you say then that, that 1916 marks a kind of a watershed, that, that there's a change in, in, in the kind of, I mean, you've talked about Nocknagal and, and the Colleen Ball. I mean, does that, does that mark a sea well, change? Well, one, well, one of the things that became pretty obvious pretty quickly, especially after the banning of Ireland a Nation, even in its cut form um, that was shown at the Rotunda in January of, in January of 1917, that uh, because the audiences responded uh, to the scenes in the film depicting various uh, historical events right up to the famine, um, with uh, cheering at the cheering at the killing of British soldiers, uh, singing rebel songs and the like, and the military authorities um, banned the film after two days. So it was quite clear that anything to do with that sort of revolutionary tradition would not be permitted by the military authorities. As a result, the uh, and the fact that it was a barely disguised film about casement, which unfortunately has been lost, called Whom the Gods Destroy, that had been um, made in the, uh, shortly after uh, casement was uh, executed in August of 1916, made in the States, um, that was banned in Britain and Ireland um, because obviously audiences would be able to read it, that the central character was casement. And so therefore, the Film Company of Ireland with Knock Nagao and Willie Riley Took, the, took some of the really important current themes that were part of the Sinn Féin IRA nexus at the time and tried to explore those in these historical films. So what you have in Knock Nagao is a very subtle realignment of the themes of Kickham's novels to really demonstrate not so much that the large tenant farmer, as 
as, as Kickham would have it, was a rather uh, you know, unsympathetic to his labourers, shall we say, uh, and, uh, and others, and, and that has also reprehensible um, absentee landlord. But what actually the film version of it um, that made, uh, allowed for the filmmakers to really demonstrate that all Irish social classes, including the landlords, should unite together against a common enemy. And the common enemy, uh, in the case of the film version of Nagal, was the reprehensible land agent who wants to display some of the, the farmers uh, from tillage to pasture. And similarly, in Willie Riley and his Colin Bourne, as MacDonough made the version of it, released in 1920, which is a film that is set in the 1740s and 1750s, uh, dealing to a large extent, well, with two main themes. One is to do with religious sectarianism uh, and bigotry, and the other is to do with the inheritance of land. And of course, you know, at the time at the, during the penal laws, Catholics weren't allowed to inherit uh, land or, or property of any significance. And the mechanism used in the film of the sympathetic Protestants taking the land into trust of a, a prominent Catholic landowner, so there wouldn't be as a stolen from by a bigoted Protestant. And it really has messages right throughout it, which are really sometimes put in the voice of, of Protestant liberals that remember we are all Irishmen together. And that was, of course, a theme that was very much in the framework of what was, of course, developing in relation to the Partition Act in the North, uh, or the Government of Ireland Act, uh, and, um, and those sorts of elements. So they were able to try and, and, and explore some of these uh, very important current Sinn Féin discursive elements, but not being able to do it in terms of films that were set in the present but dealing it as, with, as historical films. And they, the both films proved to be hugely popular uh, here, um, massive successes, uh, and uh, obviously, no doubt, were subject to. So you're saying they're trying to get around the censorship? Absolutely, yeah. Displacing them in time. Into historic. Yeah. Uh, and it's not unusual for, uh, even in the present, for historical films uh, to be made in conflict zones uh, to, as a way of trying to explore themes. Uh, into the present. One of the most, you know, shall we say, successful films, interesting films made about Northern Ireland wasn't a contemporary film in the, uh, set in the 80s or 90s, but Thaddeus O'Sullivan's adaptation of Sam Hannibal's 1951 novel, December Bride, which was released in 1990. And mm. it explores mm. those issues of Northern sectarianism mm. through uh, in, in December Bride, but, be, but it could do it in a, a more, shall we say, relaxed way in a, in a historical film. Just, Kira, I want to go back to newsreels again, like, and because we, we, we've talked about the First World War, the, the 1916 Rising. What about the War of Independence and the Civil War? How, how were they depicted? Because these are trickier there were, issues. Uh, the, yes. There was very little political context, as was expected. The newsreels didn't go into all the nuanced political debates of the day. Um, and in fact, they had, again, quite an obvious pro-British agenda in their depictions. So there are lots of shots of the inherently violent Irish enacting self-destruction in order to pursue their political ideals. Um, 
Interestingly, there's an optimism associated with the signing of the treaty. So here we see um, a very positive, optimistic sense um, when we have this coverage of the signing Splendid of the, news, the, the treaty. King. Splendid news. <laughs> there's no indication here of the protracted, lengthy negotiations of the problems that arose during the, these negotiations. There's no extra context given here. This is a very upbeat endorsement of the treaty. And the newsreels continued to endorse the treaty throughout the Civil War and became much more sympathetic to Michael Collins, even though he had enacted quite a bit of damage on the British during the War of Independence because he was associated with the treaty there's a sympathy um, given to Collins after this. It's interesting at the end of this newsreel, there are quite poignant shots of Collins smiling, um, joking, laughing. Um, and again, this ends on an optimistic note. But of course, we know that Collins felt that he'd signed his own death warrant. And eight months later, the newsreels would be reporting on his funeral. And that was reported with great respect. Um, and it's interesting that when Eamon de Valera comes on the scene, um, the newsreels are much more suspicious of him. They remember his association with the 1916 Rising um, and they know that he's rejected the treaty. So he, throughout his political career, is this dark, dangerous figure in the newsreels. And at the very extreme, one case in particular, he's even called a dictator. Um, so again, we have quite a pro-establishment um, agenda when it, when it comes to these newsreels, which is unsurprising given they're made by British companies. And of course, it's a kind of a postmodern moment uh, in the Ken Loach's The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Mm -hmm. You have a film within the film, the, 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 the treaty <coughs> is explained very effectively. It's very, it very effective when I show it to my students, you know. It gives but a, what but the, actually, the, Ken Loach yeah. did what the early newsreel producers did. He took footage from a variety of newsreels, some of them six months apart, and he Yes, and he suggested that this is an accurate newsreel. He made up his own intertitles, of course, for the purposes of narrative cohesion. But it's, it, it's very effective in showing what Irish responses to the treaty might have been. But it's not realistic for us to assume that Irish audiences got this news in the cinema. The newsreels were necessarily delayed. And that newsreel in particular was released a few days after the signing of the treaty. So audiences would have known through the newspapers, through word of mouth, they wouldn't have been receiving this news in the cinema. But it's a useful scene in terms of showing um, how audiences access moving image news and how they responded um, to certain conditions in the treaty. Does anybody want to come in from the audience there uh, before we, because I'm just looking at the, 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 the clock here. It just, yeah, it, there's a, if you use the radio mic so we can, we can hear you. Uh, hello, um, this is a, a question or a query for, for Kira, I guess, really. Um, uh, we are going back a little bit, sorry, Tommy. Um, Gallipoli, 1915. Is there any uh, newsreel coverage of that? Because Gallipoli was very important, obviously, in an Irish context. And I'm thinking particularly of the, the Royal Irish Rifles, mm. which recruited guys from Dublin and, and from the north. So it, it, it links back to that point about you know the, the, the war being a kind of combined effort across the sectarian divide, et cetera, et cetera. But mm -hmm. uh, is there any Gallipoli stuff? Not that I'm aware of. But um, again, these, and especially those propaganda films, um, were 
footage was taken from different time periods, from different locations, and it was knitted together. It wasn't necessarily always what they told us on screen. Um, but also at that stage, there wasn't a huge amount of filming going on in comparison, of course, with World War II. And topical budget eventually into the war, actually, I think it was 1917, they became War Office topical budget and became an official distributor of war news. Um, but the other companies didn't really get much of a look in at that stage. Um, but it's interesting how this footage was shot throughout the war. So with the North and South Irish at the front, it's taken throughout the war, but it's re-edited towards the end of the war. So again, we have a sort of a using of library footage at this stage and cobbling together of whatever's available in order to fit this propaganda function of suggesting that the 36th Ulster Division and the 16th Irish Division worked alongside, um, which wasn't always the case necessarily. I think there was a, an attempt by the industry very early on in the war to appear that they, they, you know, it's a new industry and it's also a little bit, you know, looked on with suspicion by the establishment. So they wanted to keep the cinematographers away mm. from mm. the front. Mm. And the front, of course, is a fairly nebulous thing anyway. And, and, you know, and it's dangerous. See, and, <laughs> and, and it's dangerous. Um, it's messy. And uh, Gallipoli was not a good story, of course. <laughs> but um, the, it's, it's, it's really in 1916, you know, around the time of the Somme, that the, they have finally convinced the British government that actually making these films is a good idea. You know, it has a propagandistic function, uh, you know, and, and so it, it, it enhances cinema's role in, in society. You know, here we are, you know, as part of the war effort and so on. Can I throw another question uh, on that? Um, the, the first war is, is, is one of the first wars where the, the enemy, your enemy is depicted like as vermin, right? Mm. Uh, uh, to, to be exterminated, essentially. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that crop up in film, either in, 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 in yeah. uh, fiction or in a newsreel? Yeah, you know, this, yeah, this depiction yeah. of the enemy as subhuman. Well, one, yeah. one of the interesting uh, discussions in the film censors' records in the late 1920s a man called James Montgomery who was the censor in the 20s and 30s, operating under the 1923 Act. And he took a very strong line, especially against British films that depicted the Huns in mm. the most negative light. And, um, that, and he, um, he was systematically banned or cut such films and saw, saw, saw them as a, um, uh, well, unfair to the Germans, to put it mildly, and, 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 and even though the 1923 Act doesn't have any explicit um, um, provision for political censorship, uh, there is a, a provision called, if it depicts, uh, or in public, uh, what is some sort of phrase, it's seen as negative in terms of public morality, could be, could be cut or could be banned. And so that really, in, as, as British continue to produce films about the war that certainly de depicted in an extremely negative and racist light, um, the Germans, that these were systematically uh, uh, cut. So that, that element. Tommy, can I just make one thing about mm. the Civil War? Because you asked about the Civil War. Uh, and, um, and obviously the Collins funeral footage is probably the most famous material from that. But if you just jump forward to the, the first important compilation films that were made um, in Ireland, that's uh, Mishera in 1959, Saoirse two years later, which were looking at the period from really the 1890s right through. And there was supposed to be a third part to that series, and that was to do with 
uh, Ireland in the 20s and 30s. But Saoirse ends on the 28th of June, 1922, and you'll know what happened on that day, which was the bombing of the four courts. And the, and the camera just pans into a, um, um, the black smoke, as it were, from the very end of the film. And they could not agree on what should be made after that, because obviously there was still such divisions uh, mm. in terms of those events, of, of, you know, from what happened after June 22 right through to May of 24. And, and there, there was no sort of provision. But what was, is quite interesting is that when Searsha was shown in September of 1961 at a cinema in Dublin, that members who had fought on the two sides of the Civil War marched in together into the cinema to give a public demonstration of reconciliation. And even though that the, the, Gay Lynn, who produced the films, and indeed George Morrison, the director and others involved, could not agree on how to deal with mm. the, the events on film and how, whatever sort of, how do you represent the 20s and 30s, there was that, the use of that, those films to actually signal as we went into the 1960s uh, reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Anybody else want to come in from the audience? Yeah, point, a, a couple of points of information. Uh, one of the reasons that St. Enders was readily available, both for uh, Willie Riley and his Colleen Bourne and the Bond oh, film, was that Jack McDonough, and he was better known, by the way, to all and sundry as Jack, was working as the headmaster in St. Enders at the time. He also appears in the film. He plays the idiot. I think he, he calls him, he uses the, the stage Tom name. The Tom the Fool. Tom yeah. the yeah, Fool. I think he refers to himself as uh, Richard Sheridan. That's yeah. right. But the other one was in relation to his brother, uh, Joe, mm. who had been a member of the first Dáil, was jailed and on hunger strike during the War of Independence, was not at that time force-fed. During the Civil War, again, he was jailed. Again, he went on hunger strike. This time he was force-fed. They ruptured his gut, caused peritonitis, and sent him home to die in front of his family on Christmas Day. Somebody else? Yeah, just over here. I think this woman over here. Sorry, can I ask here, um, uh, from the British point of view, uh, where was the locus of the organization to to sort of sanitize the films from the First World War or 1916? What sort of a unit was it and who composed it and how did it operate in Ireland? Um, well, they were they were British companies who would have had um, cameramen in various locations throughout um, the UK and throughout Ireland and they would have sent them off to film certain events, many of them staged of course, but also cameramen submitted a number of stories um, and they were then brought in for processing and editing and not all the stories made the cut each week. So the, the programmes tended to be bi-weekly um, when the newsreels were at the height of their popularity to match programme changes in the cinema, but they could have had countless stories coming in during that time and then there was a decision made about which were deemed to be most newsworthy, but also there was a decision made in terms of um, avoiding controversy, again because cinema patrons didn't want their 
that our cinema owners didn't want their patrons upset or offended. Um, now, when this comes to Ireland, it's really, really difficult because there's such a fluid set of political sensibilities that are changing all the time. It's much easier to deal with British audiences, um, but Ireland was part of that British distribution circuit. We know that later on there was an attempt to acknowledge that kind of local nature by including local stories often on Gaelic sports and, and frequently items on the royal family were um, substituted for items on Gaelic sports um, and that was one of the ways that Irish sensibilities were, were addressed but of course it was hugely problematic and the newsreels themselves exhibited a sort of a partitionist mentality in depicting north and south quite differently as well. Does somebody want to come in over there? Come over there. Yeah. And I'll go to you then Luke after that. I just wanted to say that my first memory of film was seeing uh, something called the Baker Brothers in a tent. Uh, the, the film was shown in a tent in, at the back of Erlingford's J.J. Kavanagh garage. And I, my father took me and they charged him sixpence and they charged me, they actually took my tuppence away because somebody asked uh, how much it cost. This would have been about 1944, 1945. And in connection with the Bacon people, did somebody mention them? Okay. Um, in the early 50s, um, every week we were shown a film in my convent boarding school in Care County Tipperary. And it's only as I listened to you, sir, that it dawned on me that Mother Catherine was Mother Catherine O'Mara. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, just if that yeah. was where it, it came from. I would imagine there might be some Gallipoli footage in Australia. Yeah, that I, does strike me, and they might be smart enough to know one regiment from another, or in Turkey, for that matter. Mm. Well, I wouldn't know about the identification <laughs> of the regiments there, but in Australia, they might have, have at this stage enough material to identify who was where. But my tribute to Mother Catherine, she used to sit in the projection box with her fountain pen, and every time a cleavage turned up, up went the fountain. <laughs> I, th I think that's, um, you know, th those kind of memories of, of where cinemas were in, in tent shows or, you know, at, at kind of a fairground kind of a show or in schools, you know, it's not just the established cinema venues that we think about. The cinema was m much more widely available. It was in halls and, and in lots of other venues apart from that's the That's what Liam O'Leary was trying to get as well from his research. Um, he was trying to document all the cinemas that there were in yeah. Ireland, so from the tiny village cinemas to the sort of the big ones like the Theatre Royal and that sort of thing and even people's memories of cinema as well. Tommy, it's just a question about staging the truth, fake news and fake authenticity. But one of the issues that some of the speakers in the panel might address is that strangely enough that when it came to Ireland and the authenticity of locations, that was the first time that real locations were used and mm. outdoor locations were used in film. The Calum shot Ben-Hur on a dirt track on Manhattan, alias Palestine. But when they came to depict Ireland, they were not going to fool anybody that Vermont was Killarney. <laughs> and, and they had to come to Ireland for the use of outdoor locations. So that Ireland puts this pressure on, if you like, authenticity in films from the very outset. 
and indeed I think Kevin Kevin might say more about this, but on the showing of the KLM companies in New York, actual soil from Ireland was exported and people could walk to see the movie across genuine Irish soil. Not alone was the genuine <laughs> Killarney on the screen, but you you actually touched Irish soil on the and, way. And, so, and, so and this specifically turf, in fact. Turf. Make even. sure that you had a really authentic. So, so, so you, so. You saw literally, that's it. <laughs> so it does show that there was a concept of authenticity mm. and, and a concept of actuality of in circulation. While it is true that everything was up for grabs in the way of staging events, and including in the Skirovacin in news, as well as feature or fiction films. So, so could you say something about, about well, the case, use of as, as you well know yourself, because you've written about this, that, that tension in some of the Calum films between the historical events of 98 or whatever, or indeed the Colin Bourne, is sometimes uh, interrupted by the travelogue identification of the lakes of Killarney or of the Gap of Dunlow or whatever. And it's that sort of dual address, in fact, in some of those films. Now, what we'd say is, in terms of the history of cinema, that this is the transition period we called from what some people would call primitive cinema, that up to about 1907, before the feature film is established by about 1917. And there's almost two competing versions of cinema at that time. But it is true, even in the historical films made in 1907 through to even 1915, that while the Calum historical films, hugely important as they are, um, made uh, in, in the Killarney area and elsewhere, that there was quite a few that were made in America, far more, in fact, historical films made in America, where you have places in California or on the on the East Coast masquerading as if they are or Bermuda. Ireland. Or Bermuda. Or yes, Bermuda, right. indeed. And, indeed, some of the costumes um, that have been uh, resting on Irish people would have actually you know, suited probably people who live in the, in the Tyrol district of uh, Switzerland or in... Uh, in the Swiss Alps uh, or wherever, you know, that, so that there's all these sort of competing visions in this period of cinema that we would say in terms of the history of cinema is really more to do with its transition period, uh, but that impulse towards realism is, Tony, of course, Tony Tracy to says it's um, the, the Kellum Company in coming to Ireland took a wrong turn. <laughs> and, and that they, they did produce or produce films that had the authentic landscape, but they in Ireland and then they went and they made a very famous film of the passion in the in Palestine. Um, but m most of the rest of the American film industry uh, went west. <laughs> they went and east. The Kalems that decided to and that was, build a um, film studio, studio in Killarney, but then there, there was talk. There was talk. The war happened. Yeah, there was talk of that, and yeah. you know. Lots of Duke, just an interesting twist on the authenticity question. That clip we showed earlier of um, the, the, the of um, Ireland a nation, where you show Michael Dwyer up in this tower, but looks like a, this historical tower. Mm. That's actually a folly <laughs> built 
on the edge of St. Enda, still there at the corner. Like it looks like some ancient fort. In fact, it's only, it's not more than 200 years older, if it's even that. So, you know, what looks like something authentic in that film is actually something that's... that's uh, Emmett's Fort. That's a, a, a fabrication. Emmett's Fort. Emmett's Fort, as it's called. Yes, 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 that's it. <laughs> Listen, just, just to, to wrap up here, what struck me about this, this uh, discussion, this very interesting discussion is, you know, we, we have a really interesting um, um, sort of film landscape here. And then we've already referred to the 1923 Censorship Act. And then there's nothing. I mean, mm. a lot, some younger people might be forgiven for thinking that the Irish film industry started with my left foot, you know, in the 1980s, you know. And the only thing being that and what we've been talking about is The Quiet Man, right? Mm. So I'll just throw this out to everyone on the, on the, the panel. You know, what, what went wrong <laughs> after the revolutionary period, yeah. given that we, we, Ireland was at the cutting edge of both uh, producing films, newsreels, and Irish themes were, were shown. Well, the simple answer backwards. is is the poverty really of the state. There's also in the reconstruction period after 22, there is certainly the censorship of films act, but that was mainly targeting against what were perceived as anti-Catholic or salacious American films during the jazz period, and and from 1923 24 onwards. Um, there were about 100 films per year banned uh, right through. But there's about 2,500 films <coughs> banned and about 10 to 12,000 films cut uh, here uh, under the 23 Act. Um, and there was a huge number of other films that were never even submitted to the Irish censor because the distributors had to pay for the act of censorship just to rub salt in the wound. Uh, and so a lot of films weren't didn't even come to the country that were being <coughs> distributed uh, in Britain. But the other thing that, that becomes then very obvious later on, certainly by the 30s and into the 40s, uh, was that the ambition of the Minister for Industry and Commerce, Sean Lamass, who was Minister for most of that period right through to him becoming uh, Taoiseach, uh, was that really he saw film really as, a, as another factory that made uh, could, could made, make objects that would help Ireland's uh, economy, <coughs> employment, balance of payments. And the sort of cultural uh, war that went on ha operated differently between the Irish Film Society established in 1936 and the Catholic Church, in particular Archbishop McQuaid, who established the National Film Institute of Ireland in 1943. And these two really were fighting out an, essentially an ideological war below the you know, the cinema, you know, possibility of, of producing feature films. And that continued on for quite, quite some time. And, the, uh, and uh, subsequently, Lamas established, uh, with some state aid, Ardmore Studios in 1958, uh, though that proved to be a bit of a disaster and didn't really support indigenous productions. So there's a number of layers to it, which is to do with issues of economy, there's also a, say, a, certainly an ideological struggle between essentially a non-sectarian liberal organization, the our Film Society, um, that was, not, was both a film, made films as well as being an important exhibitor of certain European films, especially, or indeed even banned films they could get away with uh, because they were being shown exclusively to a middle-class audience and the state uh, allowed that to actually happen. Um, and you know, so there's a number of sort of competing elements, but McQuaid's activities, um, especially in prompting the censors, 
to make sure that nothing salacious would get through was an important feature uh, of it. And that's evident in, in McQuaid's archive as well as we know from lots of other evidence. It's there in the censorship book I did about 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, so that there was a lot of evidence to show how that, that was operating and how the Department of Justice in particular colluded uh, with um, McQuaid in ensuring that there was no films or very few, less than 10 films released before 1965 that had an age certificate. Unlike in Britain, where you had a age-determined classification, especially with the X certificate of over 16s in 1951, here that the, both McQuaid and Ministers for Justice and the like refused to give permission to the censors to allow for over 18 or over 16 films. And the hero of the, of the moment who appeared in 1965 was no less than Brian Lennon uh, as the Minister for Justice who took over from Hawhey. Hawhey refused to do it as well. So, so much for his sort of liberal social credentials. Uh, 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 and, and, but it was Brian Lennon whose family actually owned some cinemas in the Athlone area. And of course, who's, you know, you know so, so that that gradually uh, liberalised the uh, sort of sense. But there's... 500 pages about this if you want to go and read it. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I okay. think maybe, George uh, you know, the, if, we, if we think of the, the revolutionary period, the revolutionary period was a boon for cinema. And, and we can see this on the streets of Dublin. The, the destroyed area of Dublin is largely rebuilt as a cinema. Um, many of the key buildings beside the GPO, so the Metropole Hotel became a cinema. The, the, uh, the newspaper offices of the Freeman's Journal and of Alex Tom the printer it becomes a cinema, La Scala. La Scala and the Metro right beside the GPO. On the other side of the road on the lower O'Connell Street where you had the DBC, the Dublin Bread Company, a very famous cafe, um, that became a cinema. And backing onto it on, on, um, on Eden Quay, you had the Corinthian cinema, which, and they were all very much larger cinemas than anything that had been there before. Um, Dublin is rebuilt as a cinema. Just to finish off, Kira and, and uh, Joanne, uh, just bring back to the present time. So, I mean, what I'm not talking about archives. I mean, are we now in position, are, are the younger generation in position to rediscover our, our film heritage? Yeah, absolutely. I think even the fact that we're looking at clips on YouTube, that we're able to do that. And as Kevin said, the Trinity have um, a section of their website and the research um, that they're doing on that and showing um, digitised film and then the work of the IFI as well is brilliant like the IFI player um, they should be given more money to be do, to do what they do because their work is brilliant They've, the expertise is really phenomenal and, and the they, access that they allow yeah that, that material is, mm -hmm. yeah it's fantastic mm -hmm. and the IFI are about to launch a very exciting new newsreel project in April they have redigitized some Pathé and topical budget newsreels that they're going to make accessible on their player. And the transfers are beautiful and much higher quality than Pathé's own transfers. Mm -hmm. So um, they're, they're, this project will launch in April and there will be, I suppose, a lot of focus on the accessibility to this material um, and the contextualization of it as well, which is, is quite important in this decade of centenaries as we reevaluate how many of these events were represented. Also, they, they sound like very uh, exciting uh, developments. Um, we'll, 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 I'll 
we'll get something in History Ireland about that, <laughs> definitely. Uh, listen, I think I'm going I'm to wrap things up. Uh, clock has beaten us here again. Uh, I'd like to thank all our speakers, uh, Kevin Rocket, uh, Dennis Condon, uh, Kira Chambers and Joanne Carroll. I'd like to thank you, the audience, particularly those people who've made a contribution from the floor. Now, our, our next uh, History Ireland Head School is meant to be in Athlone on uh, Thursday night, but uh, the Beast in the East has put pay to that. So that has now been <laughs> postponed to Wednesday, uh, the 14th of March in Costume Barracks. And the topic will be uh, John Redmond, uh, his life and legacy. Uh, but we will be back, uh, I'm sure, before the end of the year in the, the National Library. So hope to see you then. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank Kevin. You. That was a good man. Thank Excellent. you.